taught us that the world would know we are his disciples by our love. Are you willing to leave your comfort zone like Peter, stepping out of the boat and walking on water? What could God do through you if you're willing to be uncomfortable? Imagine your life consecrated to follow Christ and love others. Love is life. Everybody. Welcome to the well at STSA. We're happy that you joined us. You're joining us here this morning. Before I jump into today's message, I want to start actually with a question. And it's a question that I want everyone to think about as we kind of go through our discussion here today. And that question is this. What could God do in your life if you were willing to be uncomfortable? Take a few seconds to think about that. What could God do in you, through you, in your world, in your family, your marriage, your, your office, your neighborhood? What could God do in your life if you are willing to be uncomfortable? If you're willing to say, whatever you say, God, no holds barred. I say yes, no matter what you say, what would God be able to do in your life if you sign the check and you let him fill in the amount and the date and the time and everything like that. What could God do in your life if you were willing to be uncomfortable? The question itself makes us a little bit uncomfortable, doesn't it? Hopefully today we'll be able to answer that question or at least be able to get closer to an answer by the end of today. If you're just joining us here today, we're at the finale of a, a series called Love Is. We started about a month ago and we talked about how we, this topic of love is the most important topic because it's the one topic that Jesus focused on with his disciples, and we are his disciples, we're his followers, the one topic he focused on with them more than any other topic, especially at the tail end before he uh, died on a cross and rose from the dead. He focused on this issue of love and he beat it in their head. And that's why we're looking at different characteristics of what love is. And we agreed from the beginning that I cannot define love because the Bible says love is God and God is love. So I cannot define it. But what we can do is look at attributes of love or characteristics of love. And there's been four that we've, or three that we've focused on so far. And we'll get the fourth one here today right now. And first we start off by saying that love is action. Love is not words. Love is not feelings. We said love may lead to words and feelings, but love is clearly more than that. Love is action. We all know people who love us with words, but the action behind it doesn't support it. Love is action. Secondly, we saw love is not just action. It's more than action. Love is an attitude. Because love is not something that you can schedule or put an appointment on your calendar. I will love on this day. That's not how it works. We saw the story of the Good Samaritan, how love is an attitude everywhere I go, everywhere I am. I'm always searching for people to love because that's what makes me rich in God's eyes. What makes me successful is the more love that I exemplify. And then last week, we looked at how love is local, meaning love is where you're at. And the people that you spend the most time with those are the ones who should be able to say, this is a loving person. Not the people that I see once a year, not the people that I see on mission trips, not the people that just see a piece of me, the people that I spend the most time with, my street, my neighborhood, my community, my family, these are the people that should be able to say, this person is love, because love is a local thing, not necessarily just an outside thing beyond that. Last week, we ended the session 
with a question as well. And I gave you a question that you should pray. Y'all remember what the question was? The question that you should ask and pray? Anybody prayed it and asked it? I know several people told me they did. And that question was, you were to ask and to pray. Say, God, show me how you want to use me as an agent of your love. Remember that? How do you want to use me as an agent of your love? And I know several people prayed that. And hopefully, we're getting closer to the answer to that question with today's finale where we talk about the final characteristic of love. Love is life. And in order to talk about, to understand what does it mean when I say love is like, we're going to look at a story from the New Testament, the gospel according to St. Luke, Luke chapter 5. It's a famous story, which I'm sure many of you have heard before. About one time when Jesus was out in the streets preaching. And at this time in Luke chapter 5, early on in the ministry of Christ, you could say this was probably the height or near the height of his popularity with the people. At this point in time, everywhere Jesus went, he healed, he cast out demons, he was doing all kinds of great miracles. Jesus was, by every stretch of the imagination at this point, a rock star. And he was such a rock star that, watch this, get this, that the more he preached, the more people came. The longer he preached, the more people stayed. I tend to have the opposite problem, I've noticed, okay? But Jesus, the longer he went on, the more people gathered. And this was one of those days in Luke chapter 5 where Jesus started preaching. And then the more he preached, the more people came. And then he continued the sermon. And he tried to end it because he wanted to go have lunch. And the people said, no, give us more. And he kept on preaching. He kept on preaching. And the multitudes kept coming. And people kept gathering. Why? Because he's not just preaching. First of all, he's preaching words they never heard before. He's showing love they'd never seen before. He's healing people like they'd never seen anything before. So people kept coming and coming and coming and coming. Finally, they're standing by a lake. Finally, there's so many people that he can no longer see everybody. So he said, I need to be able to take a step back from the people so that I can see them. Behind him was a lake. So he looked into the lake and he saw some fishermen in boats. One of those fishermen was someone that he knew, was Peter, who at this time, Peter was like a believer but not necessarily a disciple. He was someone who believed in Jesus and said, Jesus, he, he could be the Messiah. I'm not really sure. Like he's got something special. But at this point in time, Peter had not yet left his whole livelihood and gone to follow Jesus. He wasn't a full-time disciple yet. And we know that because he's still fishing, all right, along with his brother Andrew. So Jesus sees his friend Peter there, who's a good guy, and Jesus gets an idea. We'll pick up the story in Luke 5, starting in verse 1. So it was. As the multitude pressed about him to hear the word of God, pressed about him, see the crowd, the rock star, that he stood by the lake of Gennesaret. And he saw two boats standing by the lake, but the fishermen had gone from them and were washing their nets. Then he got into one of the boats, which was Simon's, and he asked him to put out a little from the land. And he sat down and taught the multitudes from the boat. Here you have Simon, who is Peter. Okay, same person, Simon Peter. Here you have Simon in his boat, Okay, he had been in his boat while Jesus was preaching, all right? And then Jesus, like I said, so many people, so many people, so many people said, I, I need to do something about this. Now, by that time, Simon had come into the land to clean up, to put away his net. Why? Because that's what we're going to find out in a little bit. He had been out there all night. And how much fish did he catch while being out there all night? Zero. Out all night? Caught how many fish? Zero. And the time of fishing had now ended. Okay, anyone who knows fishing, you got to catch them early in the morning. They're near the surface. By the time the day wears on, you can't really catch fish. So the time of fishing had pretty much passed, and Peter had how much to show for his efforts? Zero. Now, before you take, take that on too lightly, 
Imagine you went to work all day from 9 in the morning to 9 at night, and you got paid exactly $0 for it. Because that's exactly what happened to Peter. Imagine you worked all day, and your boss said, actually, you know what? Today doesn't count. We're not paying you for today. Or can you come in on Sunday when you're not going to get paid anything extra and, and work all day? That's not how. When we go on Sunday, we expect time and a half, don't we? So Peter, who is a good guy, Jesus comes to him, says, I need to borrow your boat. Okay, what are you going to do with my boat? Does I need to do some preaching in your boat. How are you feeling if you're Peter right now? You worked all night. Okay, I used to be a waiter. Okay, I never used to be a waiter. Business closed at 10 o'clock p.m. No one's there at 9.30, 9.40, 9.45. You start to clean up. You start to put the chairs on the thing. 9.58. 9.58, you walk in. Someone walks in and orders a drink. So, A, I'm not going to get any tip from this drink. This $1.99 drink, I'm not going to get any tip from it. Are you just going to have yourself a seat right there? This is how Peter feels right now. I had a rough day. I made zero all day. I got nothing in tips. And then you come in, order a $1.99 drink. You're probably going to leave me 10 cent tip on that. So Peter's a little bit annoyed. Okay, and we see that here. When he said, when he had stopped speaking, he said to Simon, look how Jesus, Peter's a little bit annoyed. And Jesus almost pushes his buttons more. Like Jesus had a way of like sticking it to him because Jesus knows what he's going to do. So Peter's kind of grumpy. So he says, hey, Peter, I got an idea. Launch out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. <laughs> so now you didn't just order a drink. Now he said, let me see the dessert menu. What dessert menu? <laughs> like already you're sitting in my boat. I can't clean up. Now you're saying, go back out, and the nets, which I had just put away, bring them back out, get my boat dirty again, so I'm going to go through this whole cleanup again, and why? Who are you? You're a carpenter. You build chairs and tables. I am a fisherman. I know how to catch fish. You don't catch fish after the morning is done. That's how it works, Jesus, especially when I've been here for nine hours trying and caught nothing. But Simon, politely, because he's Jesus, can't go crazy on Jesus. Customer's always right. <laughs> but Simon answered and said to him, Master, we have toiled all night and caught nothing. Now, if we just pause the story right there, every one of us would say, Peter is justified in his response. We've caught nothing. Like logic, Peter's right, Jesus is wrong. Thankfully, though, for Peter, he didn't stop at logic. Verse goes on. Nevertheless, after he said, we toil night caught nothing. Nevertheless, at your word, I will let down the net. And when they had done this, they caught a great number of fish and their net was breaking. So they signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. This is why I said Jesus had a little sneaky side to him. And Jesus sitting there say, hey, Peter, why don't we uh, go out and let the nets down? And in his mind, he's like, <laughs> Peter's grumpy. He's like, no, no, Peter, just trust me. Just trust Because he knows what he's about to do. And he knows that not only is Peter going to catch a fish, couple fish, a few fish, but so many fish that how much, how much fish? Quantify this number of fish. So much fish that the net was breaking. Hey, that'd be enough. That's the mother load of all fish. But no, 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 no. Not just the net was breaking, but in addition to the net was breaking, what? He had to call his partners from another boat to come help. And not just the other boat came, but both boats started to sink from the amount of fish 
Do you see why Jesus had a little snicker inside him when he did this? And this story had an effect on Peter and had such a great effect that we read at the end of the story after a little discussion between the two. It says, and Jesus said to Simon, do not be afraid. From now on, you will catch men. So when they had brought their boats to land, they forsook all and followed him. Peter's life was changed this day. I told you he started as a believer, but not a follower. That all changed this day. I don't really want to get into the details of the miracle and the fish because that's not really our topic. But what our topic is today is that what does it mean when I say love is life? It means that love is not a topic to discuss. Love is not a verse to memorize. Love is not an event to sign up for. Love is a way of life. And it is much bigger than anything that we have talked about here in and of itself. Because love is a lifestyle of being like Jesus. This is the verse that I've showed you every single week. John 13, 34, hope you haven't memorized by now. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you love one another. Not love your enemies, not love your neighbor, not love an eye for an eye, not love your family, not love your wife, not love your husband. You love as I have loved you, and that is too big a topic to be contained in any one event or any one action or any one attitude. What we are talking about here today is a lifestyle of love. And what we are going to see, this as I have loved you. Let me ask you the question. How did Jesus love us? Like try to put the love, let's make it bigger than even just Jesus. Let's make it love of God. Which, love of Jesus, it's the same. Okay, it's the same. Okay, let's say love of God for us. How does that love look? I'm gonna show you a verse, then I'll give you my opinion on it. First John 4, 7, 8 says, beloved, let us love one another for love is of God. Love is of God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. He who does not love does not know God for God is love. So it says two things. It says love is of God and God is love. You know what does it mean when we say that love is of God? It means that love is not what he does. It's who he is. Love is not what God does. Love is who God is. It's a difference between being love versus being loving. We can be loving. He is love. Does that make sense? He is, we be loving. He is love. Let me try to draw you a picture to show you the difference between the two, what I'm saying. One is a nature. One is an event. He is loved by his nature. We are loved by action. Think of it the difference between a rose and a bottle of perfume. Rose scented. In the end, the scent is the same, right? In theory, okay, a rose versus a rose perfume. But what's the difference between a bottle of perfume and a rose? A rose does what to release its scent? A rose does what to release its scent? Nothing. The rose is the scent. If the rose exists, the scent exists. Perfume, squeeze the thing, okay? Squeeze the thing and then the scent comes. Squeeze the thing and the scent comes. We start off in this world, like the perfume bottle. That we have God's love inside of us, and I'm going to go be loving to this girl. I don't know who she is, but I'm going to be loving to her, okay? And then I was loving to her. And then there's her friend there, I'm going to go be loving to her, and then I come back. And then this person, uh, okay, and I go be loving. And I try to be loving to everyone, and I say, I'm going to be the most loving. So I'm going to dedicate one, two, three, four, five, six hours a day, and love that guy, and love that guy, and I'm going to be loving. And that's great, and it has to start that way. But that's not the goal. The goal is to get to the point where love is no longer an action. Love is no longer something that needs to be triggered. Love is no longer something that requires a thought process. 
where love becomes who I am. That I become love. And everywhere I go, it becomes involuntary. Remember the example I told you all in the first week about driving? Remember that? I think that's a, such a good analogy. That when we start, yeah, I'm praising my own analogy, I know. When we start driving, remember how we started driving? Like very nervous. I don't talk to me. I don't roll down the windows. It's a thousand degrees, but I can't roll down the windows, okay, because I'm so nervous and I'm 10 and 2 and 10 and 2 and 10 and 2. And this is how we drive, right? And then what happens after time? You know what I mean? Like with the knee up, right? Because the more we practiced it, the more it became part of our nature. That's why we get in the car, we start driving, we don't know where we are going, but we just, by our nature, we go certain places. We've done it, sprayed so many times that it's become our nature. That's how we need to be with love, because that's who Jesus was. How we get there. For sure, for sure. It requires practice. And my hope is that's what we're all doing through this series is learning ways to practice it, for sure. But it needs something more than practice. It needs a level before. And today, I'm not talking anything practical, even though I am, but I'm not. I'm talking about the step before the practical. The step that is often, too often overlooked when it comes to any of these topics, but especially when it comes to love. A life of love is a life of consecration. And what I want to talk about here today, as we wrap up this series, is this big scary word, consecration. Because it's a scary word. It's a word that we don't like. It's a word that we think makes us end up looking a lot like me. And we don't like that. So we kind of put consecration off to the side and say, big word, scary word, stay away from me. What does consecration mean? Too often we identify consecration with things. Consecrate an altar. Consecrate a building. Consecrate something, an, a, 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 something that I take, and as it says in your handout, to make or declare sacred. That's the meaning of the consecration. To make or declare sacred, to dedicate formally to a divine purpose. That's, that's what it means. To take something and to say, this thing, I got a cross up here. This thing, I consecrate it to the service of God. I consecrate this table to, the to become an altar of God. I consecrate this building to be a house of God. We always think of it in terms of things. Well, I got a news for you. When you ask God about the word consecration, he doesn't think about things. He thinks about people. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 6. For you are a holy people. We'll get to what the word holy means in a little bit. You are a holy people to the Lord our God. The Lord God, Lord your God, has chosen you to be a people for himself, a special treasure above all the peoples on the face of the earth. What consecration means, means take something and set it aside, set it apart for special usage. And when God thinks of consecration, he thinks about me and you. And he says, you, I set you aside for a special purpose for me. You, you are special people. You are holy. Holy doesn't mean what we think it means. We'll get into that in a little bit. Holy literally means something set apart. Something off in its own category. And God says that's us. That's why if you remember back in the New Testament, many times when Jesus would be out and about in the street and he would do a miracle on the Sabbath day, he would heal the lady, the, 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 the man with the withered hand. And he healed him on the Sabbath day. And everyone said, the Pharisees said, hey, 
You can't do that on the Sabbath day. You're not allowed to, to heal people. That's work. That's breaking the rule. Jesus said, you people, are you so closed-minded? He said to them, he said, if your ox or your donkey falls into a pit on the Sabbath day, you're going to say, hey, nothing I can do today. It's the Sabbath. If your horse needs to eat, you're going to say, hey, I can't feed it. It's the Sabbath. Of course not, because you care about your horse. You care about your ox. You care about your donkey. Of how much more value is this child who is a son of Abraham, is a child of God? And that's why Jesus said, people are who are consecrated, not things, not animals, not stuff. Those are all pictures of what I'm true consecration, which is me and you, set apart for God, consecrated for a divine purpose. I love this verse from Psalm 8, verse 4. King David says to God, he says, what is man that you are mindful of him? And the son of man that you visit him, saying like, who am I, Lord? You care about me. Who am I? But you have made him, made me a little lower than the angels. And you have crowned him with glory and honor. Did you know that? As part of the human race, you have been crowned with glory and honor. That God created everything on this earth. Everything, everything, everything. And once it was all set, he created us. And he didn't just create us, he crowned us with glory and honor. You know what that glory and honor is? He said, I'm gonna put something inside you that no one else has inside them. You know what that is? Me. I put myself inside you. You are made in my image. You are made according to my likeness. You are made with me in you, in your DNA. We have been crowned with glory and honor, set apart by God. God has already, I got news for you, has already consecrated us to him. But now what we want to talk about today is the response to that, because consecration is a two-way street. And consecration has to go both ways, where God says to us, I make you a special people. And then we say, I accept it, and I walk in that special path. Think of it like I'm a king, and I have a daughter. And I say to my daughter, you are the princess. You have a right to inherit everything that I have. I give to you my name, and you have this entire palace. It's all yours, but you have to act like a princess, and you have to walk like a princess, and you have to dress like a princess, and you have to live in the palace. You cannot go out there and deny what I gave to you and then come call him for it later. We're the same way when it comes to God. God has already consecrated us. He's already set us apart. Now, the question is for you and me, how do I respond to that? What is my part in the consecration process? Does that mean I have to be a priest? Does that mean I got to dress like you? Does that mean I got to quit my job? Does that mean I got to be miserable? Does that mean I can never have friends? Does that mean I can never listen to music? Does that mean I can never have money? Is that, is that what consecration means? Well, I'm going to show you today, consecration doesn't mean any of those things. It could absolutely for you mean that you need to quit your job. Like I want to sit here and say that no one quits their job. Absolutely. Some of you, God is calling you. I, I don't know. I, I'm not God. But it doesn't mean by default that you must quit your job to be consecrated, if that makes sense. All right but I don't want to say that it doesn't ever mean that because sometimes it does. There are three steps to the life of consecration and every one of us can do all three of these steps. And everyone is at some point in this process. There is, as you see in your handout, separation, sanctification, and offering. Three steps every one of us can do to live a consecrated life. And we're going to start at the top with separation. First step of a consecrated life is separation, choosing a holy life. 
Consecration begins with a decision, a choice. That I say, I choose to be holy. I choose to live a life separate, apart from the rest of this world. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 15 says, As he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, because it is written, Be holy, for I am holy. What's the key word that was repeated four times in these two verses? That God is trying to beat in our thick heads. It's holy. Holy, one of the most misunderstood words in all of Christianity is the word holy. We think of holy, we confuse holiness with perfection. And holiness does not mean perfection. Problem is, God is truly the only one who is holy. Because God is the only one who is set apart. Because we say that God and humanity, they're not the same at all. So God in that sense is holy. And that he is apart from the rest of humanity. But we are called also to be set apart. And the first step of being set apart is saying, not that I'm going to be perfect, because you will never be perfect. It's not saying that you never make mistakes, but it's making a decision to say, I am no longer like everybody else. God, I want to be like you. I'll show you why holiness doesn't mean perfection. Who wrote these words? Peter. Same Peter that we just saw a minute ago. He's going to be our, our main star for today. Was Peter perfect? Of all of the disciples, who was the most not perfect was Peter. Even to be honest, and be honest, I know this sounds bad, Judas, who did the most wicked thing, Peter messed up more than Judas. As far as quantity of times. Not to the degree, obviously. Peter denied him. Peter was called by Jesus, get behind me, Satan. Like, I ain't never been called Satan. Especially by Jesus, but that's pretty bad. Peter messed up more than anybody else. Holiness doesn't mean perfection. Holiness means consecration to live a life of being set apart, saying, I am not the same as everybody else. I want to be different. Think of it this way. When we celebrate the Eucharist, when we celebrate the Eucharist, okay, we have communion, we celebrate the table of the Lord, the body and blood of the Lord. What happens? At the beginning of the service, a plate is brought, okay, like a round thing, and it has several pieces of bread, okay, round, like pieces of bread. And what happens? One of those pieces of bread is chosen, and it is set apart from the rest of them. The rest of them go back somewhere over there. I don't know where they go. Okay, they go back there. But this one is set apart. And what happens to this one that's set apart? It becomes consecrated, and it becomes something very, very, very special. Now, here's the key. Do we consecrate this because it's holy? Or is it holy because it's consecrated? Say it again. Do we set this one apart because it's holy? Or is it holy because it's been set apart? This bread is no different than those pieces of bread. What makes this bread special is that I said it's not like them. It's going to go away from them. I'm setting it apart. I'm putting it over here, and I'm saying, God, this is in your hands, not in those hands. And I'm telling you, me and you, me and you, me the first one, you all, all of us, me and you, there ain't nothing special about me and nothing special about you. What makes me special is whose hands I put my life in. And I say, I am set apart, God, for your use. Then I'm the most special person in this room. I'm not special in and of myself. I'm not special, and that's why I was consecrated to God. 
I consecrated myself to God and then I became special. And I really believe that, especially those who knew me before consecration, those who know me after. I'm not special and therefore I was consecrated. I was consecrated and therefore I became special. Does that make sense? Does that make sense to everybody? The bread is not holy. Though, I'm sorry, we don't choose the bread because it's holy. Because we set it apart, then it becomes holy. Said another way. Don't start with doing, start with deciding. Life of love, life of consecration. Don't start by doing. This is the number one mistake we always make in every aspect of life. Any aspect of life. We are so rush, rush, rush. We're so quick to just check something off a list. We start by doing and then figuring it out later. I'm going to build a house. Just start nailing stuff. Okay, how many rooms? I don't know, but I know there's got to be some wood around. So just start building stuff. Before we do, we decide. What I mean by that specifically is I don't need anyone here today to say, you know what, I decide, or you know what, I'm going to be a priest. I'm going to be a monk. I'm going to be a nun. I don't need anyone to say, I'm going to quit their job. I definitely don't need anybody to say that. But what I need to say, what I need all of us to say is, I will be holy to the Lord. And I don't know what that means. And I don't know what, I don't know what the end of that is. I don't know where that's going to lead to. It may lead to quitting my job. It may lead to becoming a monk or not. It absolutely could, but it could not. I don't know. But I decide today that I'm his. And I'm leaving this basket and I'm jumping into this basket. I'm no more living to be like everybody else in my office. I'm living to be like my father in heaven. I don't know where that's going to lead me. I don't know where that's going to end up. But God, I consecrate myself to be holy for you. Believe me. Y'all maybe have heard me tell this story before. I won't tell the whole thing right now. I don't think me, my decision to be a priest, to quit my job and become a priest was not, don't take it the wrong way, was not the hardest decision in the whole wide world. It was not. It was not a fast and pray for six months. It was not a, oh, what am I going to do? You know why? Because the hard decision had come six months earlier when me and my wife had made a decision, no matter what God asked us to do, we will never say no. And I still remember when we consecrated our lives, it was in a Borders, y'all remember Borders bookstores? Okay, Borders bookstore. That's where we used to go on dates, okay? Because that was just, it was like it was free, okay? We could just sit there and <laughs> pretend to be, you know what I mean? Like chatting or whatever, okay? <laughs> it was at a Borders bookstore that me and my wife consecrated our lives. And you know what? It ended up as priesthood. Who cares? Ended up, she left her job. All right, it doesn't matter. It ended up, serve this community. Hey, with pleasure. None of those things are the decision. The decision is the life that I will live wholly to you, God. My life belongs to you. Step number one is separation. Step number two is sanctification. And this is the job training, so to speak, that you say, I consecrate my life to you, God. Okay, what do I do next? What do you do next? Is we draw near to God. Remember, what's the goal here? The goal is not loving actions. The goal is to be love. The goal is not the perfume. The goal is the rose. So therefore, if that's the goal, then it's going to require a little bit of work on the inside. I like this verse from James 4, verse 7 and 8. It says, therefore, submit to God. Resist the devil. Submit to God. We can look at be, like be separate. Submit to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Think of it 
as I said, the rose analogy. Our goal is to be like a garden that has the fruit that's coming up and giving off this beautiful aroma of love. That's our goal. Our goal is not, again, events or activities. Our goal is our nature to be transformed to love. If I'm trying to make fruit in my garden, I want there to be fruit. Here I have a garden, actually a good analogy. We moved into our house uh, two years ago and there was a little plot, okay, probably about like the size of a third of this stage right here. Mulch, fence, sprinkler system already inside it, perfect spot for a garden. So what did I do with that piece of, of land? Absolutely nothing. Left it as is. Couple of months ago, okay, th in, in the fall, how did this piece of land look? Had lots growing in it, but it certainly wasn't fruit. By the time I had to look up to see the top of the weeds, I said, I need to do something about this. The weeds are so high because I had done absolutely nothing with it. If I want this to produce fruit, the first thing I got to do is I got to start moving away the bad stuff. And then I got to prepare the soil and I got to fertilize it. And I got to put that tarp thing at the bottom and I got to spray the stuff and I got to turn the sprinkler system on again and reconnect the hose to it. I got to do a lot of work to prepare it to bring forth fruit. Agree? Same thing is needed for us. If we're going to bring forth fruit from here, we need to do two things. And James points to both of them right here. One is on the plus end, one is on the minus end. One is the removing of the weeds, one is of the fertilizing. And I'll give you more even specific here. Let's start on the negative end. First thing he said is resist the devil. So we are going to resist sin. Resist sin. And I didn't put it up on the screen, but I put it in your handout. Forgot to put it up here. Resist how much sin? To what point? Look at this verse from Hebrews 12, 4. You have not yet resisted to bloodshed, striving against sin. You have not yet resisted to what? To bloodshed. How does this picture? Resisted to bloodshed means you, you, remember in the Rocky movies how Rocky would never go down? Okay, never go down. No matter how much they beat him, doesn't matter. He never go down, never go down, no pain. He never go down to the point you're going to have to kill me to get me to go down. Is that how we fight against sin? That's not how I fight against sin. I'll be the first one. That's not how we fight against sin at all. Something silly, something dumb. Sweets. You want me to tell you how many times I said I'm never going to eat sweets again? I mean, how, many, how many times I made a promise, a commitment in front of God, in front of my wife, in front of my kids, I'll never eat sweet again. Oh, but it's so-and-so's birthday. So, I mean, it's a birthday. <laughs> and this is, what, this is what we were doing. Uh, uh, confess. Okay, forgive me. I'll confess honest. During Lent, I said, I'm not going to eat any sweets at all during Lent. No, he's right, that's right. Then it was someone's birthday. So I said, okay, we'll eat sweets. Then it was someone else's birthday. Okay, you don't want to offend them on their birthday. After that moment in time, I started going went through the church database. Whose birthday is coming up soon? I'm going to visit them. <laughs> Peter, in another verse, but I didn't put it up on the screen, says your enemy, the devil, walks around like a roaring lion. That's what, that's what he says. A roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. That's the way it was back in the olden days. It took a lion to devour Christians. Today... It's like a little kitty cat with a meow and ah, you win. All the promises we make, all the I'm never going to do this again. Resist to bloodshed is the first attitude. And then the that, that's the removing of the weeds. And now the positive side, practice spiritual disciplines. 
This is the fertilizing. This is the tilling of the soil. This is the adding the bug spray stuff or the whatever stuff, I don't know anything about it, but whatever makes the, the soil fertile. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 27, St. Paul says, I discipline my body and bring it into subjection, lest when I preach to others, I myself should become disqualified. We actually did a good series on this. That's probably two years ago or something like that. Remember the spiritual sweat series for those who were back in the day? And we talked about, I think it was seven spiritual disciplines. Spiritual disciplines. And we made it like a workout kind of a thing. Go back and watch those online if you, if you, if you didn't see those or if you want to refresh your memory. We need those spiritual disciplines. What are the spiritual disciplines? We need, in no particular order, I'm not, I don't have a comprehensive list. I need to be reading my Bible. I need to be constantly reading my Bible in the word of God. If I'm not in the word of God, how in the world do I expect fruit to come from this? I need to be praying. I need to be fellowshipping. I need to be in, 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 a, in a, a body of believers. I need to be giving. I need to be volunteering in some way. Like I need to be practicing. I need to be practicing all these different spiritual practices. I need practice of solitude, practice of confession. Like I need all these practices. And you say, what in the world does it have to do with anything else? Like what does sin have to do with love? What does it matter if, what does it matter if I'm praying? Why can't I be loving without praying? What does it matter if I, if, I, uh, if I go crazy on the beltway, okay, and I drive like a maniac and I lose my temper inside? I'm not hitting anyone with my car. I'm just yelling at them in my head. Like, what difference does it make? No, it makes a difference because the goal is not love as an action. The goal is love as a nature. And you will never have the nature of God inside you unless you practice spiritual disciplines and resist sin. And if you do not practice spiritual disciplines... Who are you hurting? When you do not pray in the morning, who do you hurt? Do you hurt me? Do you cheat me? If I'm an athlete and I'm training for the Olympics and I cheat on my diet and I have a donut when I shouldn't have eaten a donut, who am I hurting? I'm only hurting myself. I'm only cheating myself. If I miss my practice time, I'm only, I'm only cheating myself. And the same thing is true spiritually. You're only cheating yourself when you deny yourself the spiritual practices of discipline. Number one, first step of consecration was what? A life of separation, which separation means choosing a holy life. God, I dedicate myself to you. Number two, I, I don't just say it with words, but I act it out by resisting sin and practicing spiritual disciplines, okay? That's drawing near to God. And then number three, probably where most of us wanted to jump to when I said consecration, is a life is an offering which is willing to be uncomfortable. If we are honest, if we are honest, me first and foremost, if we are honest, most of us build our lives, including our spiritual lives, around what makes us comfortable. And if you were to think how many hours a day you spend just focused on making yourself comfortable, you'd be surprised. And I want to say it's even true spiritually. See, spiritually, we build our faith around what works for us. And the things that work for us and make sense to us, we're all about those things. And the things that are difficult, we say, those don't matter. Or those are for somebody else. Or those are legalistic. Or those are old school. Or those are for my parents. And we say, these work for me. Therefore, I like them. Therefore, these are important. And anything else, you know what we do? We make Christianity a buffet. What happens when you go to a buffet? You walk in, and you, 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 you never, okay, they, what do they always put at the start of the buffet? Salad. 
We have strategies on these. We never start with that. You finish with the salad if there's room left, but you never start with the salad, okay? Because that's just wasted space on the plate. You only have so much place. And you go through, and you say, okay, I like this. Okay, I don't like that. I like this. And you fill up your plate, and everybody in the end has a full plate on what it is that they like. We do the same thing with Christianity. So what do we do with Christianity? We say, here are all the commandments of God. Eh, I'm not sure I like this one so much. But you know what? I can just put an extra helping of this one on here. And then we make them like vegetables. Like we know like we know vegetables are good for us, but we really don't like to eat them. So we just put a scoop on there just for the sake of, you know what? Because we have to have something on it. So we say, okay, you know what? I don't like any of these things. Okay, but just, okay, stick a do not murder on there. Do not adultery. Okay, that's fine. But like, okay, honor your father, mother, like a half scooping of that. Okay, I'm not sure with that. I don't know if I can. And we pick and choose the ones that we like. So we finish with a plate and we say, well, there's no more room on my plate. You know what I mean? I wanted this out, but there's no more room on the plate. That ain't consecration. Consecration, as I said in the beginning, set apart. It means God, whatever you say, even if it makes me uncomfortable, even if it doesn't taste the way I wanted it to taste. Matthew chapter 16, verse 24. Jesus said, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, deny his comfort, step out of his comfort zone, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. I'll give you another picture. What's the difference between dating and marriage? What's the difference between dating and marriage? Dating is selfish. Dating is about me. Marriage, the way it's supposed to be, is unselfish. It's not about me. What happens in dating? Dating, I like this person. They make me happy, make me feel good. So I date them. And then all of a sudden, they don't make me feel happy. So therefore I say, no thank you. <laughs> and I quit. And that's what you do in dating. And you date, makes me happy, and then don't make me happy, and then I leave. That ain't marriage. Marriage is no leaving. Marriage, this person doesn't make me happy. It doesn't matter. Marriage is lots of things that don't make you happy. You can't quit. Marriage requires me to lay down my life for the other person. Marriage requires me to get up in the middle of the night, go downstairs when I am so tired and get a cup of water. Marriage requires me to pick up milk on my way home from, from church today. Marriage requires me to take care of a child every now and then and scoop up stuff that they have spilled. Marriage requires me to not keep my underwear all over the floor the way I like to keep my underwear on the floor. Therefore, dating sounds like it's more advantageous, right? Look, there comes a time in any dating relationship where enough is enough and it's time to take the next step. You all know when, you, when, when, hopefully you don't know, but there comes a point in time when a couple's been dating for like nine years, and it's that awkward point of like, come on, man, like, ladies, if after nine years he doesn't know he want to be with you, get him out, okay? Sorry, gentlemen, sorry. But after nine years you still ain't made up your mind, get him out, ladies. You need somebody who wants to be with you and commit to you and say, I want to be with you, even if it requires me to make a sacrifice for you. Well, I'm asking you, how many of us have been dating God for so many years? That when God is nice to us, we're nice to him. But sometimes we don't like what God says. So we say, okay, you know what, God? Time out here. I don't know if I'm, I don't know if I'm okay with that. Let me take a break. I'm burnt out from church and burnt out from God. What burnt out from church or burnt out from God mean? 
That's our way of dating God. And I got bad news for you. And I'm not trying to make anybody feel bad. I'm not trying to make anybody feel guilty. But how many of us are saying, God, I love you, but I'm not ready to marry you. I'm not ready. Watch this one. I'm not ready. Girl. Okay, guys dating a girl. I'm not, I want to be with you, but I'm not ready to leave my old girlfriend yet. I'm not sure I want to be with you that much that I want to leave my old girlfriend. That's what we do with God. God, I want to be with you and I love you, but I'm not sure I'm ready to leave my old life. I'm not sure I'm ready to leave my old habits. I got, see, I got my old life over here. I'm not sure I'm ready to give that up for you. So let's just stay dating and let's just date a little bit longer. Give me a little more time to make up my mind. Question for you. How long are you going to stay dating God? Like how long? If you're dating God, come up with an answer. You're a smart person. Come up with an answer. How long are you going to stay one foot in, one foot out? How long are you going to say, okay, God, I love you, but no. God, I want to be with you, but not to that degree. God, I want to give myself to you, but not really 100%. How are you going to keep on saying, God, can't we just date for another year? How long? See, that's why what today, what Jesus did with Peter, if you were paying attention, he said, Peter, let's go into the deep. And I think that's what he's saying to us. That's what a life of consecration is. It's a life of depth. Everyone here has a relationship with God. Everyone here loves God. Everyone here believes in God. No doubt about it, you wouldn't be here otherwise. That's not what I'm asking you. I'm not asking you today to believe in God. I'm asking you today, do you want to follow him to the deep, deep, deep places? And that requires some sacrifice, a little bit of discomfort. Peter responded properly to this. And because of that, Peter learned this lesson. And the result of Peter getting this lesson, we're going to fast forward now to a few years later, probably a year later, somewhere around there, when one more time, Peter and Jesus have an interaction in a boat. But this time, the circumstances are completely different. At this point in time, Peter's in the boat, and Jesus is not, and Peter's with the rest of the disciples, and they're in the middle of the sea. Stories in Matthew chapter 14. And while they're in the middle of the sea, gets dark, waves start to, I'm sorry, the wind starts to blow, the waves start to rise, and the boat starts to rock. And that's where we pick up the story in Matthew 14, verse 24. But the boat was now in the middle of the sea, tossed by the waves, for the wind was contrary. That expression, remember, tossed by the waves, just, just to try to understand that. Remember last week I told you how much I hate to fly and how much in the airplane, okay, when it does that, you know, when it does the, like that, ugh, like that, that's how, you know, you know that feeling? Imagine being not in a plane with the oxygen mask and the, and, and the life preserver under the thing. Now you're in a boat and the boat has no way of taking care of nothing in and of itself. And the boat now is not just rocking, but what is the expression that the scripture uses? Tossed by the waves. You know what tossed means? Tossed means like, here you go. Hey, there's the boat. And then one wave tossed to another one. Hey, there's the boat. And that's my boat. And it is being tossed from one. Like, that's it. That's it. That's the end of my life. You know what? It gets even worse. Look at the next verse. Now, in the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went to them walking on the sea. And when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were troubled, saying, it is a ghost. And they cried out for fear. Now, okay, we know it's Jesus walking on the sea, but they didn't know it was Jesus. So you're sitting there, it's dark, and Jesus is not with you. Boat from left to right, left to right, tossed in the air in the wind. And now, here comes someone walking on the sea. Oh, that just made my day. That's perfect. Because now I'm going to die, and the Grim Reaper is coming to, to accompany me by his own hand to my death. And they cried out for fear. They were terrified, except one of them. One of them wasn't scared. 
Look at this next verse. But immediately Jesus spoke to them saying, be of good cheer, it is I, do not be afraid. That's a tough commandment, but okay. And Peter answered and said, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. What? <laughs> Did I miss something here? I'm scared for my life. I'm terrified, grim reaper. And all of a sudden, I summoned up the courage slash stupidity to say, I want to walk on the water. Like, where did this come from? Lord, if it is you, calm down the waves. Lord, if it is you, come out of the water and come into our boat. Lord, if it is you, invent a helicopter. Like, Lord, anything. Who says, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water? What did Jesus say? Jesus said one word to him. What was the word? Anyone know? So he said, come. And when Peter had come down out of the boat, he walked on the water to go to Jesus. Look, anytime we read the story, we're like, but Peter fell in, okay? But Peter didn't believe. And Peter took his eyes off of Jesus. And we can give a thousand sermons. Okay, you walk on water, and then you give that sermon. You walk on water for one second, and then you give me a sermon about how Peter didn't have such great faith that he couldn't stay living on the water forever. I'm telling you, in the history of all mankind, two people have ever defied the laws of gravity and water and walked on top of it. One is Jesus, son of God. The other is Peter. Consecration opens the door to a new way of life. Jesus said to Peter, Peter, come out into the deep. Peter said, yes, Lord. And then once he came into the deep, Jesus said, now that you're here, I'm gonna open your eyes and look how much more is available to you. So you didn't know that you can walk on the water. But when you give yourself to me, you walk on water. When you give yourself to me, Peter, as we're reading the book of Acts, the dead, you raise them. The sick, you heal them. When you give yourself to me, Peter, you preach a word, you preach a sermon, and 3,000 people are cut to the heart and repent and are baptized that day. See, Peter, when you give yourself to me, and you consecrate your life, man, there's a whole new world which you didn't even know existed. Compare that to the nine to five job of being a fisherman all day. Ain't no comparison. Consecration is never about what God needs, but rather what God offers. Consecration is never about what God needs from us. It's about what God offers to us. I wanna close here. We're gonna watch a short little video. Past few weeks, Thanks to many members of our, our church congregation here, many members who have had the guts to come up here, whether on the video or on stage, and speak and kind of share about something personal for their life as it deals with this topic of love. Well, today we have a very special treat, okay? Who um, The person who will be sharing with us today is a friend of mine named Dahlia. And some of you may know Dahlia, all right? She is the wife of Father Abraham, who uh, is a priest serving as a missionary in Zambia. Father Abraham and Dahlia lived in this area. Dahlia went to American University, if I'm not mistaken. She worked as a lawyer. Father Abraham was very successful as a consultant. They both felt they wanted to, not that they wanted to, that God called them to consecrate their lives and serve him in Africa. I asked Dahlia to record a little video and share with us her story. You can watch it here right now. Thank you, Father Anthony and the wonderful STSA family for inviting me all the way from here in Zambia in Africa 
to share with you my personal story of how God called me to a life of consecration. You might be surprised to know that my life of consecration happened way before I moved to Africa, before I became a missionary here in Africa. It happened right in Virginia. There are a few things in my past I'm not so proud about and that I don't want to brag about, but in the, throughout college and in the first two years of law school, I didn't even have a Bible. And there just came a point, I remember the second year of the summer after my second year of my law school, I remember there just came a point when I was so sick and tired of the lukewarm life that I was living. I was so empty, I was choking, and I was just in such a deep, dark place. And thankfully, by the grace of God, that's when I made a decision to just be all in, all in for Christ. And to be, I wanted to be holy, I wanted to be set apart, I wanted to be consecrated. I wanted to do whatever God told me to do, I would do it. Um, since that time in my life, uh, which Father Anthony, you might remember, uh, it's, been a, it's been a journey. My life has been a big journey. And um, it's, it's been really beyond my wildest dreams, I could say. It's just been an abundance of blessings and blessings after another. And then you might be wondering, okay, how when you're married to a man who wears a dress and you live in a third world country? But I can honestly, honestly say that once I wrote down things that I wanted in my husband and God granted all of those things to me and it was more than just the way he dresses or him having a sense of humor, but it was about how he also was living a consecrated life for Christ. He was set apart, he was holy, he was willing to do whatever Christ would ask him to do as well. Now, how did we get to Africa? Since I was young, I just always had this desire in my heart. Even when I was in college, and it's just kind of funny, because I didn't even have a Bible, like I said before, but I, I would sit in front of those at the time we had those really large desktop computers and I would sit in front of this thing and read stories and, and blogs about uh, missionaries actually through the Coptic church and, and on their trips, mission trips to Africa and I would just be so amazed at the stories and it was a desire for me to go there. I just didn't know how I was going to get there and after I became closer to Christ I remember praying two specific prayers and I remember always writing them down in my journal. The first one was that I was always praying that God would use me and that he would show me his glory. And the second prayer was I was praying fervently that our Coptic Orthodox Church would raise up missionaries and servants and priests and other young people that wanted to consecrate their life for Christ and wanted to live just for him. Now, okay, I said I was consecrated, but the second prayer was really for other people. <laughs> but God has such a sense of humor that he called my husband and myself to answer that prayer. <laughs> and he brought us here to Africa. Um, so I think to me, that's what it means to have a life of consecration. One, I had to be holy. I had to be set apart. And two, that I was willing to go wherever Christ wanted me to go, even if it was to the ends of the earth. Yes, for me, that was a lot of blessings and a lot of, and I, and I still feel a lot of blessings in my life, and, but I won't lie, there are a lot of challenges as well, a lot of frustrations, a lot of feelings of being overwhelmed, 
even feeling like I want to give up sometimes, hopelessness, loneliness. So there are definitely challenges as well to having a life of consecration because sometimes what Christ asks us to do is not always easy. It's, it's really hard sometimes. And I know the reason is that Christ is just drawing me closer and closer to him so I can see his glory. But once you do taste the life of sweetness, of a life of consecration with him, to be set apart, to be consecrated, to be holy for him, to be willing to do whatever he wants me to do, honestly, it's just so hard to turn back and live just any other average life. It's almost not even worth it. It's almost not even worth living if you're just gonna live that way. There are fears, there are your family obligations, there's work, there's loans, there's being lonely, there's being uncomfortable. There's a thousand excuses why you should not consecrate your life, but there are a thousand more reasons why God requires you to consecrate your life. Like I said before, I think a life that's not consecrated is a life not worth living. There is a verse that I'm focused on during this time of the resurrection. It comes from Philippians chapter 3, verse 10 to 11. I'll read it for you. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. And again in verse 12 it says, not that I have already attained or am already perfected, but press on, that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. I don't want us to focus on the fellowship of his sufferings as to why you should not consecrate your life. There is sufferings, yes, but through those sufferings, you should be able to see his victory, his power, the power of the resurrection. Let us focus more on the power of his resurrection how a life of consecration is a life of victory and a life of power in Jesus Christ. A consecrated life, one that is set apart, one that is holy for him, one that is willing to do whatever he wants you to do, is the resurrected life, is the powerful life. People then ask me, but how do I know what God wants me to do? How do I know where he wants me to go and how do I hear his voice? And one thing I can say for sure that I've learned from the people and the simplicity of the people here in Africa is that not to complicate God, to keep it simple. God, Jesus, wants all of you. He wants all of me. He wants everything, everything. He wants your heart. He wants your mind. He wants your dreams. He wants your desires. He wants everything only for him. From there, he'll make known to you the desires of his heart. What he wants you to do, what he's willing for you to do in his life. Honestly, he won't let you down, no matter how hard it is, I know. <laughs> Why? The goal is to attain the resurrection from the dead, that we may know him, the power of his resurrection. Every journey is unique, my story, your story. I don't know where Christ will take you. I don't have all the answers, but I do know one thing is for sure. God wants to reveal the power of the resurrection in your life, in my life, in your consecrated life. Thank you so much again. Uh, I know 
now it's You'd rather hear from Father Anthony, but thanks for hearing from me for a little bit. I'm praying for you. Please pray for me. I hope that we can see each other very soon. God bless you and lead you to a life of consecration. God bless you all. Yeah, yeah that's sure worthy of clapping. That's worthy of clapping. Look, I'm done. But I just want to ask you the question that I had at the beginning. There we go. I just want to leave you with this question. I asked you in the beginning. What could God do through you if you were willing to be uncomfortable? You heard from Dahlia. You heard from me. We saw St. Peter walking on the water. Now the question is out to you. And as we stand together to pray, this is what I want you to be thinking, is what could God do through me if I was willing to let him, to be uncomfortable? A, separation. B, sanctification. C, offering. Every one of us is stuck at one of those points. Have I offered myself to, have I, I'm sorry, set myself apart for God? Am I practicing the spiritual practice and resisting sin? And am I willing to go wherever it is that he leads me? Each one asks themselves that question. And hopefully we'll get to hear some of those answers over the course of our time here together. Let's stand together for a prayer. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. Lord, we thank you for bringing us here and we thank you for wrapping up this series on love with not a challenge, but an invitation to a truly blessed life, to a new way of living like Peter walking on water. We pray, Lord, that all of us would have eyes to see the life that you want to give to us and then the courage and the boldness and the faith to take the steps that we need to take. Lord, if there's anyone here who's never said that I want to be holy for you and I want to be set apart for you, I pray, Lord, that you, through your spirit, would move inside our hearts. That you would move inside of us, Lord. That you would help us to take that step and say, Lord, I want to be yours. And I want to consecrate my life for you. And I don't want to live like the world. I want to live for you. Give us the, the discipline that we need to grow that faith, to draw near to you. And then the, the, the clarity we need to know what it is you want us to do, even if it makes us uncomfortable. We pray this in the name of, of your son, Jesus Christ, with the prayers and intercessions of all your saints. Hear us, Lord, as we pray together, thankfully. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. In Christ Jesus, our Lord, for thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen.